Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. The prophet Joel wrote these words sometime in the latter half of the ninth century BC, before Christ. The circumstances were dire. The people of God had been divided in two, with two kings, a split people and a split nation. One can certainly imagine some parallels with our own time. There is an amazing diversity of prophets that God sends to his people. I think the same is true for pastors. And we must remember that it is God who calls and God who sends. Some prophets were willing and zealous. Others were reluctant and withdrawn. Some were learned and some were not. Some were more blunt and less personable than any pastor you've ever had. Some were eccentric, walk around naked publicly eccentric. And some were kind and gentle. Joel was the kind and gentle type. As Luther says, Joel's way was not to denounce and rebuke, but to plead and lament, to use kindly words to make the people righteous and protect them from harm and misfortune. But the thing about unbelief is that it really doesn't care. It doesn't matter one bit if the prophet is the most winsome or gentle of all men. It doesn't matter if he's an intimidating bulldozer of a man. It doesn't matter if he's the world's greatest logician or the most eloquent and engaging speaker. Unbelief simply doesn't care. The hardened heart will not be moved. If the prophet was given to a more serious demeanor, unbelief would say, why, he's too serious and too dour to be heeded. If the prophet was given to a more jovial nature, unbelief will say, he's too silly and pandering to be taken seriously. Our Lord himself laments this very thing. Unbelief can always find an excuse. It will accuse the messenger of dancing when he should have mourned and mourning when he should have danced. So what does gentle Joel preach? As I noted at the very beginning of this sermon, there is a corporate call to action. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. But before there is this call to action, there is a preaching and reminder of who God is. Yes, even more, there is a direct message from God himself to the people. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Then Joel himself adds, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Words so moving, we sing them during Lent before every gospel reading. We sang them just moments ago. 
there is a certain ossification that has taken place in our ears and in our hearts. We tell ourselves, I think, that everything is finished in Christ, which is true, of course, but not in the sense we frequently apply it. That any biblical call to action is just metaphorical at best or synergistic at worst. Return to me with all your heart, the Lord says. What great words these are, we think. But does it dawn on us that God might actually be calling us to action, to, in fact, return to him? Why, I wouldn't even know what that looks like, we say in our defense. And then the Lord tells us very concretely what this looks like. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. But so great is our aversion to actually hearing our Lord's word and doing it, we would rather accuse him, or at least the messenger, of pietism, legalism, even Romanism. But since that would be too ugly for us to accuse God directly of such things, we take a more sophisticated path. We say, return to the Lord? Why, that sounds like me doing the doing. Fast? Weep? Mourn, rend my heart, that's all me doing the doing. This is all law, and therefore its only purpose is rhetorical. Its only purpose is to accuse me. God doesn't want me to return to him with all my heart. He wants me to realize that I cannot return to him, and certainly not with all of my heart. God doesn't want me to fast or weep or mourn. He wants me to realize that Jesus has done it all for me already. God doesn't want me to rend my heart or my garments. He wants me to realize that all of this is futile, so don't even try. But what is the result of this theological game that we play? Only that when our Lord says, return to me with all your heart, we do nothing at all. We might even scoff at those who would return to the Lord who would fast or weep or mourn or rend their hearts. At the height of our hubris, we might even accuse them of not understanding law and gospel. But with this game, we've done nothing but create a sophisticated way to close our ears to the plain word and the living voice of God. What on earth could be wrong if you, trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation, trusting in the all-sufficient atonement of his cross, trusting in the perfect righteousness of his blood poured from the cross to the chalice to your lips. If you confessed that you do indeed need to return to the Lord your God. No, it's not that he's wandered from you but it is indeed that you've wandered from him. 
It's not as though his love for, for you has failed. No, he loves you with his whole heart. But it is you who have not loved him as he deserves. And there are, in fact, concrete things you know you need to change. So you humble yourself and open your ears to him. Return to me, he says, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. This isn't about an outward show of piety, gaining more praise for yourself. On the contrary, this is about humbling yourself enough to hear and obey the voice of the Lord your God, who loves you, who knows what's good for you, who knows how to heal your deepest wounds, who knows full well that the constant pursuit of pleasure and happiness and ease and more and more dopamine release isn't in fact the cure, but the very thing that is keeping us from acknowledging that we need to return to the Lord. So our Lord calls out this night to those who have ears to hear. And I would also like to draw your attention to the words our Lord says just before he says, return to me. Because these words in course of time change our lives forever. What does he say? He says, yet even now. Yet even now, return to me with all your heart. What is hidden in those three words, yet even now? All our sins, all our shame, all the most grievous ways we've hurt others and offended the heart of God, but especially our own hard-heartedness, our unwillingness to do what he says, our ignoring his words and our theologizing away the plain words he speaks. All manner of horrors are hidden under those words too. Our me, me, me-centered lives, our rebellion and our hatred of authority and order, our wrath and lust and internet history, our lies and gossip, our theft and coveting, our scheming and plotting, our playing the victim, and our covering it all over in a great big gospel facade. But worst of all, it's the closing of our ears and the closing of our hearts to our loving God. Yet, even now. Yet, even now, declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And those last four words, abounding in steadfast love, take on an equally profound meaning. Steadfast love in the original is covenant language, promise language. It's God the Father's ceaseless love for his own dear children, sinful though they be.
It's God the Son's solemn I do to his beloved wife, though she has not been faithful to him. It is the Holy Spirit entering your body and my own, the houses of all our sins, and declaring it instead to be his holy temple, abounding in steadfast love, refusing to damn us, refusing to treat us as we have treated him, refusing to give us what our sins deserve, refusing to come down from the cross, refusing to escape the scourges, refusing to avoid the thorns and nails and spears that pierce him through, but instead giving himself and pouring himself out for you, steadfast love, allowing himself to be nailed steadfast to the cross, bearing your sins in his own body as he hangs from the tree, knitting you together in your mother's womb, sending his angels to have watch over you, sparing you from danger and harm countless times, pouring water over your head and sealing you with his own holy name, absolving every sin you confess, even that one, placing the chalice of forgiveness and life to your lips again and again, hearing your every prayer, even when you doubt that, numbering the hairs on your head, bottling your tears, slowly but surely molding you as the potter with his clay, raising you as a dear father with his beloved child, strengthening you with a strength that is made perfect in weakness, preparing you for the day of your death, which is also the day of your birth into his everlasting kingdom and impregnating every moment of your life with Christ, who is your meaning and purpose beyond what you can now conceive. For he is abounding in steadfast love, and steadfast love is Christ. Christ on the cross, Christ in the sacraments, Christ throughout your whole life, Christ present tense for you. And that's why the ashes on your forehead are in the shape of Christ's cross. That is why the call to return, to fast and weep and mourn. The words of our Lord himself to pray and fast and give alms. That is why God calls you to these things, to action. Precisely because he loves you. Because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. My friends, it is the beginning of Holy Lent. The trumpet that is sounding is nothing less than the living voice of our living God. A fast has been consecrated this day, a 40-day fast. And this day, too, we are joined in solemn assembly, gathered together, all of us, 
with all our diversity of opinions, all our differences, all our sins, and all our wounds. And yet we are gathered as one people. Let us fast then, each as he is able. Let us weep, each as he is able. Let us mourn, each as he is able. And let us come and drink together as one from the cup of our Lord's steadfast love. And so return to the Lord our God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please rise as we confess the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Would the offering please be brought forward? We continue with the offertory. <clears throat> 